Hi, welcome to the Sweet Slumber Podcast, the good, the bad, and the sleep deprived. I am your host, Meredith Bruff. I'm a wife, a mother of five, a childcare expert, and a sleep coach. I'm here to teach you the most effective sleep advice for infants and young children. With my guidance, sleep will become something that you look forward to again, and you will feel rested. I believe that motherhood is the most important and demanding role that we have, but the challenges and accomplishments that go along with it go unnoticed frequently. We are going to talk openly about these things so that we can draw strength and compassion from each other. I will share my perspective as a seasoned mother and help you experience more fulfillment. Hello, everyone. Today, I am going to be meeting with Sarah Moore to discuss what's wrong with traditional sleep training. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. Sarah, I'd like to tell everyone about you real quick, if that's okay. She's the founder of Dandelion Seeds Positive Parenting and the author of Peaceful Discipline, Story Teaching, Brain Science, and Better Behavior coming this year, or has it been released? It's coming this year. Yay! She's a certified master trainer of conscious parenting and a lifelong learner with training in child development, improv comedy, trauma recovery, and interpersonal neurobiology. That's a big word. She's also a public speaker and is an editor and writer for Pregnancy Magazine. Most importantly, she's a mama. She helps bring joy, ease, and connection back to families. Thank you for for sharing that insight about you. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more as we talk, right? Glad to be here. Um, Tell us a little bit about your family real quick. Sure, absolutely. I um, am married, second timer, and I always say that I have two children, one in heaven and one that I have the pleasure of raising here on earth. She is an eight-year-old girl, almost nine, so I'm embracing these last days of eight, and I have a fur baby as well who may or may not make an appearance as I'm on the computer here today, but uh, we are a world-schooling family, which means that we primarily, when COVID permits, we primarily travel around the world, but our home base is Colorado. Awesome. Thank you. That's a pretty exciting type of homeschooling. Oh my goodness. Traveling the world. So um, I was looking through your website. I read that you studied under Dan Siegel and taken Vanessa LaPointe's Parenting 2.0 course. These are two people that I love to learn from. What did you think of your experiences with either of these courses? Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I am of the opinion that we can never stop pushing ourselves, never stop growing and learning. And the more time we can spend with people who know different aspects of the things that we're learning, the more we can grow and thrive in whatever it is we're doing, not just with parenting, but anything that we want to get really good at, the more expertise we can learn from others, the better off we are. Yeah, thank you. I totally agree. And I'm always amazed when I'm studying something new that I didn't know that before. And how did I function without that? You know what I mean? (laughs) Absolutely. And then it makes you think, oh, there's so much more to learn. (laughs) So from either of them or from someone else that you really admire, what is one of your favorite lessons that you've learned? Oh, gosh. Um, Certainly from Dan, as well as with one of his um, co-authors for several of his books, Tina Payne Bryson, they both really taught me the importance of 
just simply being with our children and being fully present. We really need our children to, as Dan says, feel felt, help them feel like we get their internal world. And rather than, and I'm actually going to quote somebody else entirely um, by the name of Kelly Matthews, who learned this from her mentor, Deb Curtis, I believe, instead of getting mad about our children's behavior, we can get curious about it. And the more we can understand what is driving them, the better parent we can be because we're not just trying to solve surface behavior. We're actually looking at the root of what their needs and desires and motivations and what their little hearts are craving most in life. Because when we look at those things through those lenses, we naturally have so much more compassion for them and so much desire to connect ourselves. Along with that, I've also studied under Bessel van der Kolk, who's the best-selling author of The Body Keeps the Score. He is world-renowned in his field, and he does a lot with trauma recovery. And I learned from him about how our bodies really do maintain, they keep the stresses that we have neglected to release over the years. So optimally, we want to avoid having really stressful or traumatic events happen to us in the first place. But if and when we do, we need to find healthy ways to release them from the body so that they don't manifest in all sorts of disease, you know, mental health problems, what have you. So it really is a whole body approach to understanding child behavior and really ourselves as parents as well. Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. That was just really important insight. I love your perspective. I can tell that you have definitely been coached and taught well. (laughs) The first thing that you brought up and the second thing are actually really good segues into why I'm doing this podcast series, because um, I have found over the years, even sharing the insight that I've learned with a family member who is a father before he's getting a second chance right now with a, a baby at he's like 44 um understanding his child's needs and her development her nature <clears throat> her temperament has been a completely different experience for him he says that he's so much more patient and compassionate and loving and understanding he doesn't get so upset he doesn't think oh you're a brat oh you're manipulating me those are completely common misconceptions that parents get with their young children. And like, that's, that's my goal here is I really want to help parents understand their children from the inside out so that they don't make mistakes that they regret later, or they don't leave those effects on their children without even realizing it. You know, like you were talking about how our body remembers. Um, Cause I, I think that knowledge is power. So that's why we're here today. Absolutely. I'm glad we're here. Yeah, me too. I'm super excited to hear what you think. So that is a really good, again, way to lead into um, your thoughts. I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this topic, what's wrong with traditional sleep training. And I like to put that little emphasis, emphasis there because there are a lot of people out there who don't realize sleep training means crying methods, fervor, cry it out. A lot of people just think that's a casual term for working on sleep. So I just want to make sure you understand that my concerns are about these crying methods that can be harmful to children, um, <clears throat> that they're really geared towards the easiest babies who fuss for a minute or two and sleep great after that. But unfortunately, they are um, encouraged. Parents are encouraged to use these methods, no matter their child's temperament, 
no matter what's going on, no matter, I mean, there's like these strange age limits that I don't even know why they're there. But other than that, pretty much like this is for everyone. So anyways, I'm going off topic here, but what concerns you the most about methods like cry it out and fervor or other crying methods? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got several concerns with it, but before I even get into the concerns, I want to start with compassion for parents because there are two sides to this coin. Number one, we're exhausted as parents, you know, particularly parents of babies. Oh my goodness. Sleep is like this magical elusive unicorn. We think it's never going to be something that we catch up with in our whole entire lives. And it can be really draining on our bodies and our nervous systems. When we are sleep deprived, we are grouchier. We make more mistakes. We have trouble with our executive functioning skills. We have trouble doing all of the regular day-to-day things that need to get done. So we can start to feel desperate. So I want you to know above all, I understand that desperation and how incredibly awful exhaustion can feel. I remember literally falling to my knees and bawling my eyes out at one point when my daughter was an infant because I was just so exhausted. So I want to tell people I've been there and I get it and I know how hard it is. Secondly, to quote Maya Angelou, when we know better, we do better. But frankly, a lot of us are still working with some outdated information. Many of us have been told it's fine. There's no long-term damage. You know, there are all sorts of reasons to do it, not to mention all of the lies that are so prevalent in society. You'll never sleep again. You have to sleep train or your child will never learn to sleep. You'll end up with a 35-year-old still in your bed. You'll never have more than one child. You know, they're, they're never ending. And none of those things are true. Yet, if those are the messages we're receiving, When we're already exhausted, of course, we're not going to have the energy to push back on all of them all the time. So I really want people above all, before they listen to another word I say, to feel like I get it and I know how exhausting it can be. I also want to say, I do understand that there will be some exceptions where perhaps the parent might not have another option. If I were performing surgery, if I were flying a plane, if I were doing something that really required my intense focus and I had a small child who wasn't sleeping well, of course I would be tempted to do things like this. And in some cases it might make sense. Also, if I really struggle with, rage, for example, and maybe medications or supplements aren't working, you know, maybe I've tried everything else, and yet I am left with nowhere else to turn. Maybe there are some other scenarios where it's worth looking at the gentlest versions of these things as possible. But that being said, I did say a key word, and that is exception. I do firmly believe in my heart of hearts that the vast majority of parents can absolutely avoid the cry it out sleep methods that we're talking about it, that we're talking about right here. So please forgive my long-winded intro to that, but I really do want to meet people with compassion first before I get into it. Yeah. And just, if you don't mind me interrupting you real quick, because we're definitely going to listen to your thoughts on this, but um, so just something about me is I work with sensitive and spirited children, high needs babies. And in the beginning of my career, 
because I was like most people, I thought protest crying is fine. I just want to keep the children calm. I, I will only allow a little bit of that, you know, like for a minute or 30 seconds. But um, I found a way to work with children with calm, peaceful uh, methods. And they're very much like what we do to change. We baby step changes, go back to what's normal, you know, not so much pressure or stress. And then now I've been doing this for five years. In the last year, I went from thinking that there were exceptions to really, really not looking or seeing exceptions anymore because of the well-being of children. And I'm not here to debate that with you because I totally get what you're saying. And I also know that it's a parent's call to decide when they're in that place. And also, um, like, who are we, you know, to tell them what's right or wrong. But I just have found that in most cases, there's a reason those little ones aren't sleeping well yet, that they're not ready and that it's not a good situation to force them. So it's gonna be really interesting to talk, but yes, sorry, I just remembered you said the gentlest form. I actually came up with a gentlest form of a time check for that situation. And it is available to people in those situations, like you mentioned, but I just am so passionate now from experience and learning about how important it is to just do it right in the first place. But I absolutely feel for moms as well that get in these really tough situations. So let's move on into your concerns, if that's okay. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And just to be totally clear, I am completely with you. I worked with Elizabeth Pantley, who's the best-selling author of the No Cry Sleep Solution series for multiple years. And I personally have seen virtually no situations where gentle options weren't workable for people. So when I say exception, I actually mean exception, not exception. So um, (laughs) very, very clear that we are totally on the same page with that. (laughs) Along with that, yes, the concerns. Um, Three major concerns. The first one is that we really cannot translate babies' cries. What we do is we do our best to interpret them and we make educated guesses. For example, well, I just fed the baby, so I don't think the baby's hungry. Well, I just changed the baby's diaper and I can tell it's still dry, so it's probably not that. Hmm, My body feels comfortable, so I don't think they're too hot or too cold or whatever. But the thing is, even making these educated guesses, we don't know for sure you know, maybe the diaper is too tight, maybe who knows what, but all of that aside, there is no way to measure in the moment as your average ordinary parent, who's not going to be hooking your child up to an MRI scan. There's no way to measure the amount of emotional safety the child feels in that moment. Now in a lab, we can measure things like cortisol levels, and we can see that when humans of any age are feeling fear, feeling sadness, feeling whatever, our cortisol levels increase. And when we have sustained increased cortisol levels, that does some pretty tricky things to the body health-wise and mental, physical health-wise and mental health-wise. So I am not saying that your baby who's crying, who you are being responsive to, who you are picking up is going to end up with physical and mental health problems. I wanna be clear, I'm not saying that either. However, just because we as parents can't actually measure the amount of distress that our child is in, our best bet really is to assume, like you said, if the child is crying, they're crying for a reason. 
just like we as adults don't randomly go around and burst into tears for no reason, like, oh, oh look, I'm just crying because it's Tuesday at noon and it's what I do. You know, when we cry, it's always because there is something either physically or psychologically amiss. And that does not start at a certain age aside from birth. So I really feel strongly about a cry being a request for support in some way. And since babies can't support themselves, they rely on us to provide that support to them. So our most important role is to figure out what is the cause of this physical or mental discomfort. Secondly, parents sometimes misinterpret my child is being quiet rather than my child has shut down emotionally. Even as a 47-year-old adult with a you know, fully functioning prefrontal cortex, whatever, if I get to the point where I am so far beyond distraught that I just start to shut down. Dr. Mona Delahook calls this going into the blue pathway. Um, Stephen Porges of polyvagal theory calls it dorsal vagal, the dorsal vagal state, where we basically do a dorsal dive. When our bodies shut down, it's because we have gotten so flooded with emotion that we basically need to stop expressing it as a simple matter of survival. And as a parent who has left a crying baby, I don't know if I am hearing a child who has just decided, oh, you know what, actually, I think I'm really okay here. I'm just going to go to sleep now. Or a child who has learned no one has responded to me. And therefore, probably no one will respond to me. Because they don't have the ability, the part of their brain that is able to think about the future literally has not developed yet. That comes much later. They are living in the moment. Babies are very present. And when a baby or a young child is feeling like nobody is going to respond to their cries, absolutely, they can do that dorsal dive or go into that blue pathway, depending which doctor's terminology you prefer, and they simply shut down. Now, it might look nice to me because, oh, great, baby went to sleep but there's no way to tell what their nervous system is actually experiencing as opposed to, you know, our perception of it. Yes. Last but not least, and this in some ways might be my biggest concern, even though the other two are pretty big as it is, but when we sleep train our babies and we are intentionally unresponsive to their cries. Not only are we quote unquote training them, but we are also training ourselves. There is a risk. I'm not going to say it happens in every case. It certainly doesn't. So lots and lots of good uh, compassion once again to the parents who are able to show up for their children, you know, during the day, during the waking hours and at night. But there is a risk for some of us that if we train ourselves to tune out the cries or to walk away from the cries, that that becomes our habit. So that then you end up with a child who's a little bit older, who has an emotional need or a physical need for that matter. But because we are, with every decision we make, we are creating and or reinforcing neural pathways in our own brains, 
and those neural pathways help us create our habits, we train our brains when A happens, I do B. If A is when my child cries and B is I don't respond, we're training ourselves for waking hours as well. And we are much less likely to be emotionally and physically attuned to our children. We are more likely to be dismissive. We are more likely to create an avoidant attachment style where children don't really know, can I go to my parent for support or can't I because they don't always show up for me. Now, this does not mean that to have a secure attachment, we need to be 100% responsive every moment of every day. However, the more we as adults practice being unresponsive or non-responsive, the more we reinforce our own neural connections to say, when I hear a cry, I tune it out. And that can be problematic because our brain really does not have a way to differentiate between oh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon versus it's three o'clock in the morning. This time is okay, this time isn't. So we really have to be careful about training ourselves as parents as well. Wow, thank you so much. Those are wonderful insights. I really appreciate you sharing. You put a lot of thought into this and I'm sure that it's taken years of experiences and um, learning to come to these conclusions, right? Absolutely. Yes. Not to mention firsthand experience. I really had to do trial and error with my own child because she was high needs. She is highly sensitive and she was never, ever, ever a baby who I could just put down and say, have a nice nap. You know, we really had to make it an evolution of figuring out what was going to be mutually agreeable for us. And I can say in hindsight, you know, along with doctors like Tina Payne Bryson, who has done all the research, she's got a, a great book, by the way, called The Bottom Line for Baby, that explores lots and lots of baby related things, including a section on sleep training versus non sleep training. And she explores the science. She made the decision, even with all of the research that she had, not to use cry it out methods with her three boys. Notice she has multiple children, so it is indeed possible to have more than one child, but she didn't feel comfortable with it based on the research. I didn't feel comfortable with it based on the research. And I raised a child who a couple of years ago literally slept through an earthquake. She's a fantastic sleeper now. She's the best sleeper in the house. And I can sleep better at night myself knowing that I was there for her day and night. And I have no regrets whatsoever for choosing peaceful sleep rather than any method that ever made her cry. We need to hear more stories like that because of all the pressure out there about if you don't sleep, train your kid will never sleep. Or if your kid's feeding to sleep, they're going to be terrible sleepers. All those little things that are said that are so incorrect and sad um, that put a lot of pressure on mom. I love hearing the outcome for other people who chose a different way. So good for you for learning, educating yourself, and also being true to your intuition, your feelings, your connection to your child. That's awesome. I hope that you will share some of these authors and instructors, their books. Will you send those to me in the email, the ones that we've kind of talked about today so that I can list them as resources? Because I want to look them up. And sometimes you don't even know how the name's spelled or, you know, it comes out too quickly. So thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, thank you for also sharing your experience with this. 
Um, and was your daughter pretty clingy too when she was little? You know, some people would, part of my narrative is to reframe words like clingy because yeah. that has sort of a negative connotation. So, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm um, careful about using words like that, but she was definitely a baby who loved to be held 24 seven. And, you know, the thing is, and she stayed that way for a good long time. But what we know from attachment science is that oftentimes the children who are allowed to be that dependent are the ones who actually end up with the most secure attachment and are able to venture out on their own with greater confidence, with greater success when they're older, when they are developmentally ready for it, rather than being made forced to be ready too early. So yes, she was. And I don't regret a single minute of baby wearing, toddler wearing, you know, preschooler holding. And to this day, she crawls on my lap on a regular basis and we do hours of story time every day. And it's, it's our love language. Touch is a real valid love language and it, it works for us. Long-winded answer, but yes. <laughs> Yay. That's great. No, I, I appreciate your perspective and, and actually wouldn't mind sharing my perspective about my child. Who's like this. I say, I, I use a lot of um, terms carefully. And then some of them that people use all the time, they just come out of my mouth without, without even thinking that clingy thing. Um, but I also use the word clingy just to describe when a child's changed, you know, like during development or teething or something, they might become that way. So, but, um, I had a daughter, I have a daughter <laughs> who on one hand was my easiest going when it comes to just being chill and relaxed and having that inner sense of peace that a lot of these kids have that do learn to sleep well on their own or are easy to teach, or don't even need any teaching. She was that type of a baby, but when it came to being sensitive, she, um, and connected, attached, whatever, she wanted to be held. She was sucking her thumb all the time. She was holding back. She was watching and not wanting to participate till she felt ready. But like, we were just looking through pictures of her because um, we were creating a slideshow for her graduation. So she's 18. Um, and I had forgotten all these behaviors. I forgot the thumb sucking. I, I forgot how she kind of like would hide behind us or be in my arms constantly. But she was very particular to me. Um, wanting my help and now she has this amazing bond with her dad a lot of people worry about that happening you know like is it always going to be me but she is a lot more attached to him which is really cute but also this child who is so reserved and careful and cautious and shy is our most outgoing she's our most adventurous she's the one who can't wait to move out on her own and just go off to college she's not even looking back um, when we go to like church dances, she's in the front doing the line dancing, showing them how she's the leader, you know, whenever she has an opportunity, she doesn't want to, but when she's asked to, she will. Um, and it's just fantastic to see this child be this independent, this strong, this adventurous, who we would have never imagined that as a little one. And we absolutely let her go at her own pace. There was, there was no force. There was no, you're ready for this, go do it. Or, you know pushing her off to do things she didn't want to. So it does. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And mine is very much the same way. She, she reprimanded me the other day because she was like, mommy, I want to order my own food at the restaurant. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, huge. It's, it's, it's this independence blossoming and, you know, to your point, if, if somebody would have looked at these children at 
age three, you'd think never, but now it's just this incredible independence and self-confidence that came from this deep, deep dependence. It's beautiful. It is. Thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, I want to go back to some of the things that you shared earlier, just to make sure that we get to discuss them a little bit. Um, so I love what you were saying about um, not fully knowing what our babies are expressing when they cry. Um, I understand that in the first year or two, all they have is their, their verbal and nonverbal cues and they're reading ours. And some kids will learn to speak earlier, but that doesn't mean that their brains are completely, completely advanced. Like they don't really understand their feelings. They don't really understand their needs, right? And so that guessing game goes on for a while, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Well, you know, my husband's 52 and I still guess what he's feeling half the time. So yeah, it doesn't really expire. <laughs> I just went through this last night with my husband. That's so funny you said that. <laughs> um, but also this, all these things that you shared kind of connect for me because if we will rely on our intuition and really try to be in tune to our babies, there's so many advantages to that, right? And we need to constantly have that connection or at least strive to have it. Listening to our instincts, listening to our, our gut, um, being in tune, that is one of my concerns about what you were saying in the end, when it comes to training ourselves, we train ourselves to not listen to those things or trust them. We shut them off when we use some of these methods. And I think that's a really big risk too. It's not that you're going to damage your child forevermore. It's more that you're striving to have that connection always never turn it off and always trust what you're sensing your child needs, what they're trying to express. And the more that you keep that going, for me, it's a, you know, a goal for constantly doing that, then the more like well-developed your child will be, the more attached, the more like secure and peaceful they'll be about sleep. Maybe they'll become ready for independence sooner, who knows? But I, I try to tell people that that focus is the most important. It's more important than sleep. It really is. I agree wholeheartedly because it's the whole relationship, right? It's not just between the hours of 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. It's the rest of our lives together. Yeah. And often people are having to repeat sleep training. So, you know, people will talk about, well, it was just once or it was just one week or it was just two weeks or whatever. But at some point, it either doesn't work anymore or we're repeating it to try and get those results again. And so it's not always just this teeny little thing that happens. And again, to your point, our bodies remember the trauma and the bad experience in some ways we're actually sending messages to our kids that we don't want them to receive right absolutely yeah and you know for what it's worth i happen to know that my parents did sleep train me however my mom pushed back on it until i was about a year and a half old and when i was about 18 months um my dad you know essentially made her power through sleep training me well i actually remember it. I am one of those, you know, one in a thousand people or whatever who has very, very, very early memories. And I don't remember all of the details, but I do know that even into adulthood, I was still afraid to go to sleep outside the covers. It stuck with me that long. I still remember the feeling of crying and feeling like they weren't going to come back. 
So as someone who was sleep trained as a quote unquote older child or young toddler, I can say firsthand that every once in a while kids do have not only the explicit or, you know, conscious memories, but also the implicit memories of, you know, the ones we don't remember. Some of us do have both and it's not something that I would ever intentionally put a child through. Wow. That is worth a million bucks that that insight that you can share with us and that experience it. And it makes so much sense. It's for me, like when I talk to parents, number one, I'm always compassionate and I always understand, like you mentioned, the need for improving sleep, the desperation that we feel for things to get better. And then that lack of understanding and knowledge that's there because we just don't understand that children can't comfort themselves yet for many years. And that that's our role. And, you know, that creating that security is so much more important than other things. Anyways, I just, I try to help parents focus more on the benefits of all of the good things that we can do and striving for um, those connections and optimal development through our support and our responsiveness. But, you know, people go through these experiences as parents, of course we know the children do, um, and they have regrets and they look back and they wish they never did it. And that's why I'm doing this podcast series. I just really want this to happen to fewer people. And I want to spread the word, even to professionals that cry it out and forever are not the go-to. And we need to be so much more careful and aware. And now I'm just blabbing. <laughs> I did have a point, but that's okay. After every word, I've got goosebumps and I agree wholeheartedly. You know, I, I realized that at the beginning I talked about the exceptions. And, you know, the thing is, even when I say that, I feel a little bit sick to my stomach because I know that there are gentler ways. I know that there are compassion and connection-based ways to help children sleep. Sleep is what we do naturally. Children were sleeping in the womb before birth. This is not something yeah. that we need to turn into something that it's not. We can make it feel right in our bodies because we're designed to sleep. Yeah. And, and going along with that, feeding to sleep, rocking to sleep, bouncing to sleep, all those things that moms have to do, a lot of times it is an intuitive thing. They actually know this is how my child will fall asleep easiest. The child is getting all sorts of benefits from that contact and that connection. And so there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And here we have people out there that are saying that's wrong and bad and it's going to affect your child's sleep. And oh gosh, there's so many incorrect messages. <laughs> but um, the point of all that is, yeah, follow your intuition. Keep listening to your heart and what fits your child be patient, understand that sleep will come. Um, and I mean, I created non-crying methods to a free responsive supportive methods because I know that there are those situations you're talking about. There's people who just can't go on being sleep deprived anymore. The other things aren't working. The things that I created are geared towards the sensitive and spirited children um, and they do work. But sometimes that just... I mean, they can take a while and sometimes we empower kids with these abilities to be able to fall asleep on their own. At, um, and I focus on naps and bedtime and they're still waking up a lot. So understanding what's going on is huge too, so that we can be patient and supportive. Oh gosh, there's so much to talk about. 
Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, the, what is it, a million new neural connections a, sec a second that they're making, not to mention teething and growing. And I mean, their bodies are doing so much, you know, and developmental milestones, sitting up, rolling over, not in that order, whatever it may be. You know, if I had that much going on, I would be awake every hour too. This is this is a huge amount of sensory input for them to manage. So yeah, and they don't feel well. And again, that circles us back to not being able to comfort themselves. So <laughs> they're not geared to be alone. They're geared to be with people. And that's great that you brought that up because that's the thing that I kind of just stopped myself like, okay, now I'm going on too long. That's exactly what I was talking about, how that affects sleep and how it's really hard to sleep through. And if parents understood that, Number one, they wouldn't be like, oh, what do I need to change with my nap schedule? Or, oh, it's time to sleep train. Those are the obsessions when really they just need to know my kid is changing and growing so much. And this is a lot to take on. My child is sensitive. They're feeling everything and it's intensified. And right now there's not much we can do about sleep. We just need to be there. And then you look at how do I set up support for myself? How do I get through this period? That's the most important thing besides trying to help your child feel well. Exactly. Well, honestly, Meredith, in the most non-weird way I could possibly say this, I could have a baby with you. Like I would feel good about you raising a child, you know, that I mean, because this is the way that feels so right to my body. And again, no weirdness intended. It's like, this is just my odd sense of humor coming out. I love it. <laughs> but you know, we just need to respond to these little bodies because this time is so short. It feels like it's going to last forever, but it really doesn't. And as you said, sleep will come. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I love your sense of humor. So I'm glad you dropped that in. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I just adore you. I can't wait to just keep learning from you, picking your brain and picking your website and all the resources. That's a, that's a good opportunity now just to talk about that. Um, so tell us about how my listeners can find you after the show. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, website is dandelionseeds.com. It's dandelion hyphen with the hyphen seeds.com. So I'm there. I am dandelion seeds, positive parenting on Facebook, Pinterest, not Instagram, Twitter, um, and YouTube. Uh, the only exception is Instagram where I'm dandelion seeds positive living because parenting wouldn't fit, go figure. But yeah, I'm, I'm all those places and I'm a very real person here. I do respond to emails when I can. I do respond to private messages when I can. So if people have questions or concerns or whatever, they are welcome to bring them to me. Usually I respond, um, you know, without sharing any personal details, I share publicly the concept so more people can benefit. And I certainly would appreciate um, anybody who's interested in my book later this year. Again, that's Peaceful Discipline, Story Teaching, Brain Science, and Better Behavior. Different from another book by the title Peaceful Discipline that's already available. That's not me. So look for me, Sarah R. Moore. And that's out there. I've got mini courses as well on my website. And I'll just meet you wherever you are. Let me know what you need and I'll do my best to help. That was my next question. I wanted to know what kind of services you offer and wondered if you had services or if um, it was your, your mostly your books and all of these different social media platforms where you do your teaching. So do you, you said you have online courses? Yep. Yeah, I have more than 40, probably close to 50 online courses, different topics for different ages and different needs. Um, some are 
super short, like two, three minutes. Others are 45 minutes. So I have different levels of depth, depending on how much capacity you as a parent or caregiver have to um, spend watching videos. So those are available. I also interview some of the world's leading experts in um, child development and brain science and all sorts of good stuff. I've got those expert interviews on my website as well, and I'm doing a parenting summit later this year. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to offer some pretty massive discounts to the summit in conjunction with my book release to try to make it as accessible to everybody as possible when the time comes. So please stay tuned for that. That sounds so exciting. Yay. I'm so happy for you. Wonderful. Well, you were so delightful to listen to today. I'm so grateful that you came and shared your perspective. I know my listeners are, have enjoyed it. Um, and thank you to my listeners for being here and spending some time with us today. Before I just jump ahead to that, let you say goodbye real quick. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for having me, Meredith. You are a joy and a delight. And I'm so glad you do the work that you do. And to the listeners, just thank you so much for being here. And I look forward to connecting with you as well. Thank you, Sarah. Please share this episode with others so we can educate as many exhausted parents as possible and help them support their children the best way possible. Take care and come back soon. Thank you for listening to the Sweet Slumber Podcast. The good, the bad, and the sleep deprived. If you enjoyed the show today, please take a moment to write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. This will also help more mothers find my show. Thanks for listening.